At first, it was just one sheep per day. But as the deadly dragon grew more powerful, he demanded more and more. Soon it was the people of Silene themselves, so intense was his insatiable hunger, his desperate desire for more and more. Until, until one day a courageous knight named George agrees to confront the dragon. After a long and bloody battle, George finally defeats the cruel beast, saves the princess, and rescues the town. With what weapon did George slay the dragon? A spear? A lance? A sword? Maybe, just maybe, the dragon was slain by love. Welcome to Slain by Love, your weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of St. George's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Y'all, please be seated. Good morning. I want to talk to y'all about a book. What? Father Matt wants to talk about a book? Yeah. I want to talk to you about a book. It's a really old book, 2,500 years old. It is called The Nicomachean Ethics by a person named Aristotle. The Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle. Super briefly this morning, here's why I want to talk to you about this book. It is because in Greek, the title of this book is the word, the Greek word for character. Character. Much of the book concerns the discussion of virtues, virtues like courage, moderation, justice, prudence. And what Aristotle says is that these virtues are absolutely crucial if you want to be happy. They are absolutely fundamental to human flourishing and human fulfillment. Is there anyone in the room who wants to be happy, to be truly fulfilled? I wonder if there's anyone in the room who has children or grandchildren or family members or neighbors or coworkers who long for true happiness, true flourishing. Of course, we all do. So Aristotle says that these virtues Courage, moderation, justice, prudence. He says that they're absolutely necessary for human flourishing. But the question is, how do we get them, right? How do we get these virtues? How can we become men and women, women and men who are courageous, who are moderate, who are just, who are prudent, Aristotle's answer, how can we get these things, these virtues? Aristotle's answer, habit. Habit. Do you want to be a person of virtue? Aristotle says you need to work on your habits. And there's a lot of discussion of habits in this book, the Nicomachean Ethics. What is a habit? How do we get habits? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is a profound book, the Nicomachean Ethics. To be happy, you need character. To get character, you need virtues. And to get virtues, you need habits. Now, dear friends, speaking of character, that word character popped up in our lessons this morning. I wonder if you noticed it. I wonder if you heard it. On this third Sunday in Lent, did you notice the word character? Which lesson was it? Was it Exodus? 
Brad did a good job this morning of reading. Was it Exodus? Nope. Was it the Psalm, Psalm 95? No. Was it John chapter 4, this story of Jesus and this woman at the well? Nope. It was Romans 5. And in Romans 5, St. Paul speaks of character this morning, does he not? Now, it's not the exact same word that Aristotle uses for the title of that book, but it's close enough. And what does St. Paul say about character? How can we get character, which both Paul and Aristotle would agree is crucial for human happiness and flourishing and well-being? How can we get character according to St. Paul? How can we become women and men of character? Do you remember Aristotle's answer? Habits, habits, right? You need to develop good habits. That's the key. In other words, you have to do stuff. In other words, you have to work for it. I don't think that that is wrong, but I do call it the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps approach. You want character? You have to work for it. That is Aristotle's answer, his solution. But what about Paul? What does Paul say? You want character and virtues like courage, moderation, justice. I've heard that St. George's is passionate about justice. Do you want to be men and women of justice? How about prudence? How, how can we get those in our life? Aristotle's answer is habit, but Paul's answer, it would blow Aristotle's mind. Aristotle would not know what to do with Paul's answer because Paul's answer is not habits, it's not virtue, it's not doing stuff. His answer, suffering. Suffering. Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings, Paul writes, knowing that suffering produces character. Okay, okay, quick confession, quick side note. I admit it, I, 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 I played fast and loose just a little bit there because I left out a middle term. I left out one of the links in the chain. What Paul actually says is that suffering produces endurance and that endurance produces character. But you know what? We're gonna, you, I'll preach another sermon about endurance later. For now, what I want us to see is that if you want character, you have to have something else. According to Paul, suffering. Suffering. And dear friends, now we're on the territory of Lent, are we not? Now we're in a context of Lent. St. Paul says, Romans 5, 3, that we rejoice in our sufferings. There's a church about a mile and a half north of here. I know this because I live very close to that church. There's a church about a mile and a half north of here. It used to be called Promised Land, but I think that now it might be called Life Austin Mueller. And I want to tread lightly here because I do not want to speak poorly of other Christians. I don't want to denigrate other folks who were baptized. But... I know the history of this organization, actually, and it's a Pentecostal church that believes and preaches the prosperity gospel. 
the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel claims that if you just have enough faith, guess what? God will bless you. If you just have enough faith, you'll be wealthy. You'll be free of disease. Your children and your family will be happy if you just have enough faith. Then you can be certain that your success will grow, your wealth will grow, your fame will grow. But dear friends, do you realize what that means? It means that if you received a cancer diagnosis this last week, you don't have enough faith. It means that if my retirement or my savings suddenly vanishes next month because of something in the economy, guess what? It means that I don't belong to God. St. Paul says the very opposite. St. Paul says the very opposite. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, it's not that we're masochists. Even in the collect this morning, it said something like, dear Lord, deliver us from outward things, adversities that disturb the body. Yeah, the collect says that, and we are not masochists. We do not ask for suffering. We don't pray that we will suffer. But when it comes, because it will come, when it comes, St. Paul says, we rejoice. So strange. Why? Why would Paul say that? It, it seems so ridiculous. And mark my words, Aristotle would be utterly scandalized. Why do we rejoice in the face of suffering? Well, there's a lot we could say here, and I do want to keep it short. I've, there's a... There's a Rumor on the streets that it's south by, and there might be some music venues happening this afternoon. I want to keep it short. Why do we rejoice in the face of suffering? There's so much we could say here, but this is where I want us to look very brief briefly together at John chapter 4. John chapter 4, this vignette of the woman at the well and Jesus' interaction with her. Question for you this morning. Is anyone in this story the story that takes place in Samaria, is anyone in this story suffering? I'm trying to preach a sermon this morning about suffering. Is anyone in this story, John chapter 4, suffering? I want you to think with me about this, this anonymous woman. Quick side note. Last Sunday was John chapter 3, Nicodemus. That word Nicodemus, I didn't talk about this last Sunday because I didn't have time, but that word Nicodemus means confident ruler confident ruler. You could almost translate his name as man of privilege. Nicodemus has a big name. Nicodemus has a powerful name. Nicodemus is a powerful man, but look at this woman in the very next chapter. John is kind of setting up a little diptych. He's, he's juxtaposing Nicodemus and this woman, and this woman doesn't even have a name. She's not named. She's not seen. She's not understood. She has no identity. Think with me about this anonymous woman. She's the very opposite of Nicodemus. When we first meet her, when we find her at the well, she's drawing water. The text says in some of the King James, the older versions, it says the sixth hour. The version I just read says noon. That is correct. Noon. Why that detail? Why does it say exactly what time the woman is drawing water? Why noon? Why does it say that? Here's why. 
This woman came to get water at the hottest part of the day. The time of the day when the sun was directly overhead, that is when she came, and she came alone all by herself. Friends, in that culture, no one did that. No one did that. In that culture, in that part of Palestine, everyone knew that the, that the, that, that the proper time to draw water is earlier in the morning or later in the evening when it was not so scorching hot. Palestine is kind of like central Texas. It gets hot. There's not a ton of shade. And the other thing that everyone knew is that you don't draw water by yourself. You don't, you don't go to the well to draw water by yourself, especially if you are a woman in that culture. It's dangerous. That well was right by the road. You know what kind of stuff happens on the road. It was dangerous. It was kind of like one of those rest stops that you see driving along the highway. I'm about to drive to an airport in Houston. I'll bet that Carolyn and I will pass some road stops. We're not going to stop. My wife growing up, they used to stop at those road uh, rest stops, but they can be dangerous. And, and this well was kind of like that. It was right by the road, and it can be dangerous. It's not a place where you wanted to be caught all by yourself, especially if you were a somewhat attractive woman, as this woman apparently was. You see, when we find this woman drawing water at the well, she's all by herself. She's isolated. She's isolated. Why? Almost certainly it's because she had no one in her life. She had no one who loved her enough to be there with her and to care for her. After all, all five of her previous husbands had abandoned her. And why did she come to the well at noon, the hottest part of the day? Maybe it's because, well, not only did she not, not only did nobody want to be with her, but maybe also she didn't want to be with anybody else either. Have you ever gone to HEB uh, hoping not to see people? <laughs> Have you ever thought to yourself, if I go at this time, it's less likely that, it, that I'll run into someone I know? She didn't want to be around anyone. This woman is characterized by utter isolation, relationally, socially, in every way. Some of us for our Linton program are reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score, and I have to just say, how could this woman not have been traumatized? This woman is at the end of her rope. She's, she's completely out of options, no support, no safety net, no relationships of love and intimacy and reciprocity, the things that we know make us feel safe and comfortable and so that we can thrive. None of that. This woman, well, that is where we meet her at the beginning of this story. Friends, that sounds like suffering to me. But in this story, it's not just the woman who's suffering. Who else is suffering? Jesus. The first thing we learn in this story is that the Pharisees are out to get Jesus. So he's forced to flee to get the heck out of Judea, that hotbed of Phariseeism. He decides to return back to his home region, his, the, 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 the parts where he grew up. And it's very likely that as a man, a grown man in his early 30s, he was having to move back in with mom and dad. 
Regardless, Jesus finds himself in a situation here of weakness, weakness. He's forced to flee for his safety. And so he finds himself here at the well. It's burning hot outside. He's been walking all day, and he's exhausted from his journey. But not only is he exhausted, the text says that he was thirsty. And I want us to sit for a moment on this third Sunday in Lent. I want us to sit for a moment with this thirsty Jesus, with this thirst of Jesus. He's parched with thirst. It's 100 degrees outside. He's utterly exhausted, but he has nothing to draw water with. You see, weakness, dependence, lack of agency. This woman is not the only person in the story who lacks agency. You see, suffering. Here's Jesus. Think about it. Here's Jesus, the the creator of heaven and earth. He's the one who made the hydrogen and the oxygen to form those molecules of water in that well. He's the one who made the wood out of which the buckets to draw the water out was made. He is the one who made the stones which surrounded and covered that well. And yet here he is, and he finds himself in a state of thirst, a state of dependence, a state of weakness, a state of suffering. We have a Lord of weakness. Are there any other? Look, I love other religions. I love Buddhism. I love Hinduism. If you're doing the men's Bible study, you know that. But are there any other gods who are weak like this? We have a God who became thirsty. The Christian God was and is a thirsty God. That is astonishing enough, but you know what? Sitting at that well that day, parched with thirst, this was not the only time that Jesus was thirsty. Question, where else did Jesus experience thirst? On the cross, he was literally dying of thirst. How do we know? John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all said, I thirst. I wonder what, what Jesus was thinking about in that moment on the cross, his throat parched with thirst. I wonder what he was thinking about. In my imagination, this has been true for several years now, in my imagination, he's thinking about this woman this anonymous woman, not only did he share her thirst, he shared in her isolation and in her abandonment. Like her, Jesus was isolated in his time of deepest need. He had no one. Like her, he was abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Back to John 19, 28 says this, knowing that all was finished, Jesus said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. You see, dear friends, thirst of Christ, the suffering of Christ. St. Paul looks at us in Romans 5 and says, do you want character? It's absolutely crucial 
for flourishing, for fulfillment, for becoming a happy woman or man. Do you want character? It comes through suffering. Not through work, not through good habits, but through suffering. So rejoice in your suffering. Don't seek it out. But when it comes, and come it will, rejoice. Why? Why? Sounds so crazy. Why? Because it connects us to Christ, the one who suffered not because of sin, not because of necessity, but only because of love. Suffering connects us to Christ. That's the bottom line. Suffering connects us to Christ. Now, to the world, that seems crazy. They have a point. To the world, that seems absurd. To Aristotle, it would have, it would have been scandalizing. But Aristotle did not know Christ. We do. We do. And we know that suffering with Christ is better than prosperity without Christ. See, prosperity is no gospel at all. The real gospel is rooted not in prosperity, but in suffering. After all, no suffering, no resurrection. Hence, Paul says, rejoice in your suffering. Again, no suffering, no resurrection. But for that, we have to wait. Till Easter. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thanks for joining us at the pulpit of St. George's Austin, where the love of God in Christ slays our enemies, our fears, our guilt, our worries. How are they slain? Only by love. Special thanks to the good folks of St. George's and especially to that masterful media guru, Liam Dolan Henderson. See you next week. Peace and be well.